Hi, I'm Liz Stokel. And I'm Debbie Rude. We're Dancing with Skeletons. We know what it's like to keep our past hidden away, like skeletons in a closet. We also know the healing that comes from acknowledging who we used to be and how much we've learned. So every once in a while, we dance with our skeletons. So come dance with us. Hey, Deb. Hi, Liz. How's life? It's, it's uh, good. Yeah. It's going to be a little bit warmer this week than it ought to be in the first couple of weeks well, of fall. Well, that's just... But actually for me a beautiful thing <laughs> I think Deb wears uh, sweatshirts all year long I pretty much do I'm I'm always cold <laughs> poor Deb I know <laughs> that's awesome no it's going to be cooler next week and fall will be here before we know it yeah. well, in full it's going to be uh, Halloween and and uh, what's it called daylight savings yeah. Reversal or whatever. Yeah, yeah. We fall back. We fall back. We fall back. We get an in, hour extra sleep. To darkness. That's right. <laughs> I love that time of year. Hey, you know what? Last time we talked, we, we, you brought your friend Kelly, and you brought her back this week so that we can talk some more about her. Um, you guys have been friends mm-hmm. since you were in junior high. Since we were 12, 13. Mm-hmm. Would you say that you were each other's best friends then, or were there other people in your circle? Probably not best friends then, okay. but good friends. In a circle. Okay. Circle. You okay. know, I mean, good enough that I don't think we were, like, going... <laughs> you know, we weren't doing any of that with each other. <laughs> Did you ever bring anybody into the circle that didn't kind of mesh? And then, you know, one of you had to say, mm, no. None of that? No. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. We've just nice have had a we've great... We've always been just so great. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've definitely been very accepting of one another, well, even when your lives took divergent paths yeah. and then came back together and took... And took Mm-hmm. kind of parallel paths. Yeah, yeah. So last week we talked a little bit about the fact that you, as I said, you met in junior high, you went to a couple of years of high school together, you went separate ways, but both pursued music in college, yep. uh, got married within a month of one another, mm-hmm. and both of your husbands, even though they didn't know one another until you all got married, um, became youth pastors. Mm-hmm. So you had such similar paths. You really did. You were able to lean on each other and be there for each other. And uh, last week we talked a little bit about um, Kelly's marriage. And, um, and, and after how many years? You were married how many years when he was diagnosed with cancer? 31. 31 years. Yeah. And then you got the diagnosis that he had cancer. So tell yeah. us... Tell us about that. Tell us, you, you said you were traveling last week. We said that you were traveling, and uh, he had to stop to go to the bathroom many times along the way, and that was like Every the first... Every rest stop from Washington to California, <laughs> yes. So that was the first hint that there might be something, um, going, on. something going on. So what, what yeah, was so, going on? Well, so then when we got back home, of course, he made a doctor's appointment right away, and um, he wanted to make sure that the doctor would rule out cancer, so he said that to the doctor and you know can you rule out cancer and the doctor did a manual exam and he said you do not have cancer oh gosh so we were of course relieved um and then they did some tests and 
the test results proved otherwise. And so a normal PSA count is 0 to 10. Okay. And if it's anywhere up towards 10, then you should start looking into some things. Well, I got the phone call from the nurse telling me what the results were, and they said the results were 97. And I was like, 97? Wait, wait a minute. You mean 9.7? No, 97. Oh, my gosh, Kelly. So off the chart. Yeah. In shock. I'm talking to my aunt, who was a nurse, and she said, Kelly, there's just got to be some mistake. There's got to be some mistake. And I said, that's what they told me. So um, we were just, like I said, we were just in shock and trying to go to the next the next step. You know, this is 2015. He was 54 and turned out that he had terminal prostate cancer and the docs gave him five to ten years to live. Oh, wow. So um, we, we, we went from... Uh, the doctor's appointment um, confirming that he did have this cancer um, beyond just having that test. But so we went to a restaurant and we it was time for lunch, so we just went to a restaurant and ordered and sat there quietly. And the food came, and then Steve would normally pray and give thanks over the food, and and we both bowed, and he and there was a silence, and he just said. I can't, and started crying. Wow. And so I started to pray and f- was trying to fight back the tears so that I could be, you know, strong for him and encouraging to him. But we started eating, and we couldn't eat. So we just said, you know, bring us the to-go the boxes, dogs, the to-go yeah, boxes yeah. and we will take it from here because neither one of us wanted to sit there in the restaurant and cry. So we went into the car, and... And began to cry some more, and it was raining as it often is in Washington State, and um, it just began to pour, and we began to cry and weep, and uh, yeah, just. So at this and, point, your aunt, you had called your aunt, who was a nurse. Did, had you told your children? No. Okay. We we not at that point. We we didn't know, but we sat there, and as as it was raining. It and, and just pouring down. It felt like the heavens were crying with us, and it was the most intimate moment I had ever had with my husband. Just to be able, hearts, yeah. you know, breaking that, at the same time. That makes me cry. <laughs> wow. wow. So it was just kind of the beginning of our brokenness and walking through suffering together. I don't think that the church does a very good job of preparing us for suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in so do you think, let me, let me just ask this, do you think that because you were so busy in the busyness of life, in the busyness of being a pastor and a pastor's wife, that you had just lost sight of kind of what it means to be intimate? Or was that not really a part of your relationship? You know, sometimes our relationships are just not that emotionally intimate. Right. Well, I think, like Deb said in the earlier uh, broadcast, that you know, you go into marriage with different expectations mm-hmm. and kind of what you, you just assume the other person has the same expectations and yet they don't. And you yeah. figure that out after a little while. But we, we got along very well. Right. We complimented one another. Um, my love language just happens to be quality time. And so I learned over the years that um, that was something very hard for him to give me. And he was, I think he did the best that he could. Um, but there was certainly a need there 
for connecting emotionally and in conversation and just sharing of hearts that for reasons of his background, he wasn't really equipped to do. And so I think, and as we were talking last time about girlfriends, girlfriends are just such a gift because often we can connect heart to heart where sometimes our spouses aren't able to do that. We can still love them deeply, but still have that little piece that's missing that that you really need to have filled. And so relationships like... Right. With girlfriends where you can share those things, you know, you're not crazy. Yeah. You just need that to be met somewhere else. And, and did you recognize that about yourself? You know, were you able to put into that language, this is my love language and he can't give this to me, so I'm grateful for my girlfriends. Is that something you kind of saw? Yeah, I think over time, you know, I re- realized that's what was going on. Yeah. And, um, you know, counseling didn't really uncover that in particular, but I was able to once I learned about the different love languages. And um, I, again, I think he did the best that he could, but but I still had that, that need. And so where you can have intimacy in lots of different ways, when we wept together, that was a level I'd never experienced with, with anyone, uh-huh. let alone him. Wow. And so there... And brokenness is not something that you go looking for, but it's certainly something that God really does use um, because we're easier to mold when we're broken. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so, but when that happened and and we, we felt that together, all of the sudden, all of the unresolved conflicts that we had had in our marriage, little or large, just began to melt away. And it was like nothing else mattered but the love that we did have remained and that and that he'd be able to live. Mm-hmm. So that became the forefront of everything is just, okay, what do we need to do to help him live, you know? And mm-hmm. so we would we began to pray and obviously and have lots of people, other people praying with us and stuff. Um, and then went on the medical journey that we needed to go on. And so um, after that moment in the parking lot, who who were then the first people that you contacted? And did you do it together or or separately? You know, it's, it's so hard because you go through the grief process and you go through all of it and then it becomes a previous season of your life. So it's kind of hard for me to go back and remember exactly. all of those, mm-hmm. those things exactly. But okay. I remember doing... A lot of it for him. Okay, okay. I think it was really hard for him to explain it to people. So you had to tell your children. Mm -hmm. And did you have them over at the house? Did they still live at home? They still lived at home. And they knew we were going to the doctor, but they had already thought that cancer had been ruled out. That's what the doctor said. Right. So... Right. So were they blindsided? Were they emotional? How, how do you think that they, in the moment, how did they do? Not down the road, but in that moment. You know, I think that I tried to present it in a way that wouldn't be um, a big jolt to them. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is what the doctor said. This is, this is, these are the next steps that we need to take and tried to, you know smooth it out rather than drop a big bomb on them and just say we're just going to have to go forward and and see what see what lies ahead you know but we're just trusting that God will provide and walk through this with us Mm -hmm. just really not knowing what was going to happen 
And so then you had to let the church know, and let the, the staff and the, the leadership know. And um, obviously, there's not going to be any big changes made right away because right. there's a treatment plan. We're gonna we're gonna be facing right. this. Right. So did you felt like feel like you were immediately surrounded and um, that that there was a lot of people there to kind of meet your needs or. We really did. We we live in a tight community um, on Anderson Island, and we we have a very very special church family that is not um, any denomination. Um, it's non denominational, and yet it's a cumulative of a lot of different denominations. And so we try to focus on the things that are pertinent to salvation. And if we have other things that are not pertinent to, pertinent to salvation, that we may not agree with others on. We just kind of try to set them to the side mm-hmm. and say, hey, we live on an island. You know, we're not going to go church shopping. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> right. Shopping or hopping. Right. Yeah. You have to catch a ferry to get there. And so <laughs> I think people work a little harder to make, you know, to make, make it work. To make differences not be so uh, d- d- uh, dividing right. or whatever. Right. Right. So you really can't major in the minors when you're out there on Anderson Island. No. You really have yeah. to. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So we try to major on the majors and, mm-hmm. and people did, they were so supportive, so supportive. I can't, I can't even say enough. Um, I really learned the value of the body of Christ when it's, when it's, in a healthy place and when it's building up, not tearing down mm-hmm. and the benefits of that, just God's presence because people are present. Mm-hmm. And so there were times that it felt like, where are you, God? I feel forsaken. Have you abandoned me? Do you even hear my prayers? We felt like God was silent, not telling us, you know, yes, this is going to be, yes, I'm going to heal you. No, I'm not. That nothing, just in our hearts, God was silent, but we continued to pray, and others began, you know, continue to pray as well, and we did everything medically that we could. So, I know, I mean, I can't remember exactly, I mean, I I talked to you during that time a lot, mm-hmm. but I can't remember exactly, did Steve have to um, undergo surgeries and didn't he have to? I mean, I know he had all kinds of stuff. I I, I can yeah. just remember many conversations with you about the different uh, treatments and and side effects and just. So yeah. what was the first step? What was the first thing that you that the doctor said? This is our you know step number one. Well, like I said, a lot of it is a blur because there was just so much that went on. But the the cancer did metastasize to the bladder. He had to have a urostomy surgery. So we had to figure out life with a bladder bag and the leaks and the whole learning curve and lifestyle adjustments that that brings. And um, basically we chased, we chased the cancer for two years thinking that we'd have at least five or 10 years. And Together, even if the Lord chose not to heal him, we'd have five to seven years. Right. And kind of planning out life for five five to ten years. And um, yet, he didn't get those. So, um, during that time, I remember reading about running the race that God has set before you and how um, I didn't choose this race. And mm-hmm. Steve didn't choose this race. We did not sign up for this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But 
we can choose how we how we run the race, mm-hmm. and um, so we tried to run that race with confidence in the Lord and in hope and hoping for the best and doing all that we could, and um, I believe the Scripture says that we're to run it with endurance. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, it yeah. was it was a long, long, long haul. I remember. Go ahead. Well, I just remember <coughs> at different points during this journey and having conversations with you and just how tired you were. Yeah, there was a lot of sleep deprivation mm-hmm. and and feeling like just trying to keep track of all the different meds and the times that to give them and they're not supposed to overlap with this and that's not supposed to overlap with that and an appointment here, an appointment there and a fairy schedule with it and just feeling that burden really that I need to help keep him alive as if I could really do that but yet feeling like I needed to do all those things to keep him with us so did he uh continue on with his with his job and he continued preaching every Sunday and every chance he could that was the most important thing really to him he was a firefighter EMT instructor and that pretty much went first so that was hard to watch him lose the things that he enjoyed doing um, but he, yeah, he would continue to, to teach and love to do that until, until he just couldn't stand there anymore. He would just lean on the pulpit, and some of his best sermons were <laughs> his last sermons because <laughs> right. he was living them, you know, right. before his congregation. So. And so how did the congregation, um, what was their oh response to all of this? You had already said that oh you had gosh. a lot of support. Um, but beyond support, was there was there any pushback? Was there any false hope? Was there any um, words that you wish hadn't been said? Um, oh. Any of those kinds of things? Yeah. We- so um, we had people in the community that he would he had been into their homes as an EMT in their moments of need, and he was of great stature and when he showed up people would they sensed his presence and I think God's presence as well and just would breathe a sigh of relief that Steve's here it's gonna be okay you know he's got command of the situation and so a lot of people um, whether they went to our church or not had had that experience with him over the years and so many of those people would be on Facebook they would be you know sending cards they would send money they would send ferry tickets because they knew we were going back and forth to Seattle to oh, UW yeah. and oh, wow. food and one family had a yard sale and gave half the proceeds to us and I just can't even remember mm-hmm. all the wonderful things meals people brought people would be out on our porch when we came back from the hospital you know and the fire truck drives up and there's people up on our porch singing as we came home and I mean it was just it was just beautiful. It yeah. was just, and and as much as I had the hard time of God not speaking, I also saw God's hand being present through the body of Christ, and I'd never seen it in such a powerful way. And you know, when we're broken, I think brokenness is really a key to to beatitudes. If you take a look at them, because when when you've been broken, you see life. So differently. Mm-hmm. It's so different. And typically what happens is when someone has been broken in a way that maybe they hadn't been before or they experienced something hard, 
it all of a sudden now gives them a lot more empathy to the next person who comes across yes. their path dealing mm-hmm. with a similar thing. Perspective and perspective. Perspective. Yeah. yeah. I always quote like I think it's Second Corinthians. I don't have a Second Corinthians basically says, um, you know, Basically, this is the Liz version. Bad things happen to good people so that good people will rise up and help other good people when they're going through bad stuff. Yeah. And, and it's just yeah. kind of that, you know, that empathy uh, muscle doesn't really grow until you've been there, until right. you've been through something tough. And then all of a sudden sympathy or, you know, thoughts and prayers mm-hmm. uh, change to actual action because mm-hmm. now you have empathy, because yeah, right. now you understand when somebody's there. So you would talked about um, expectations and you talked about uh, how, you know, in your marriage when you're expecting that somebody's going to behave a certain way and then that kind of doesn't happen. So you had said that you were having, you were wanting to hear God in all of this. I think a lot of us, our expectations or what, what the way we want to hear God mm-hmm. is based on our experience or our emotion or our education, it's based on something we've been taught or told mm-hmm. through the years. Mm-hmm. And we kind of forget to look for the subtleties. We forget to look for uh, all of these people who are, you know, standing on your front porch singing and mm-hmm. bringing you casseroles. Because I'm telling you um, that sometimes God's voice is in a tuna casserole. Exactly. Yes, you that's know? right. And not just, you know, God's voice, whether you are a believer in God or a believer in, in any kind of spiritual energy, um, we want that spiritual energy to come like in a lightning bolt. Um, but I think a lot of us, we really need to just start looking for that voice in the subtleties. Yeah. And mm-hmm. sometimes... Sometimes God talks in a tuna casserole. Yeah. So uh, looking back now, that's, even, a, that's a good name for a book. <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely that's, is. God's <laughs> voice is in a tuna, tuna casserole. casserole. <laughs> that's just like that's like great. That'll be a, mm-hmm. <laughs> seriously. And so at the time, you want this. You want. You know, you want the lightning bolt. You want to hear God say, don't worry, Kelly, I'm going to heal him. Mm-hmm. Everything's going to be okay. But now, looking back, do you see the whispers? Do you, are you, are I you see more that. aware of the whispers? And the... I, more than anything, so, so I would be praying, really, that prayer. Jesus prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did you think this was a good idea to take my husband and leave me with my children here? to figure out my future. Mm-hmm. What were you thinking? I thought we had a deal. <laughs> I thought we were going to be ministers for you until we were old and gray and couldn't do it anymore. And that was the plan. <laughs> what happened? And um, so just, you know, a lot of heart-wrenching prayer going out and just being honest with God and being okay wrestling with God and the truth of our feelings and our perceptions that God, you know what? It kind of feels like you forsook me. Now, I know your word says it doesn't. You don't. That you will never forsake me. But even as I would say, but it feels like you've abandoned me. I could just see people's faces in front of me who had been on my doorstep, who had been in my home, who had ministered to our family in so many different ways that I couldn't even, I couldn't even say, God, you've abandoned me because your body, the body of Christ, is ministering to us over and over and over again. And so... You know, God was there in a way that I didn't expect. 
it wasn't the way I wanted him to show up. But um, but yes, and to your question, do people say things that I wish they wouldn't have? Well, the grief begins when you get the diagnosis, whether right. you, whether you realize it or not. It's the start because you're grieving. Are we even going to ever? Is this what our life's going to turn out like? It, it's not. Right. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. God's taking a sharp right turn here, mm-hmm. and we've got whiplash. Right. So, people and well-meaning people um, would bring words of prophecy, um, and stories of dreams that they had had, and most of them were pretty ambiguous. Like they could mean that God's going to heal you now, or it could mean that he was going to heal you in heaven. Mm-hmm. And yet we all know that when you're in heaven, you get new bodies. You're, you're not going to be needing any healing anymore. Mm-hmm. So what's the point of that? So someone saying, you know, thus saith the Lord, you shall surely live and not die. That's pretty clear. Mm-hmm. And then so when that didn't happen, you know, because again, we were lis- we were listening for God to say something, and then we're hearing this somewhere. Well, in the need to want to hear what you want to hear, mm-hmm. we had both forgotten that in all of our experience walking with the Lord, if God said something to our hearts first, and we didn't tell anybody, but it came again through other people who didn't really know us or the situation, then we would look at that as God's confirmation that that's what he spoke to our hearts and he's reiterating it in someone else to give us confidence, to just hang on to that promise. But God didn't give us one. It was like, what if I don't give you that promise to hang on to? Right. Will you still follow me? Will you still trust me when it's not looking good? Mm. And that's where the rubber really meets the road. And I, I just remember... I remember the talking to you and you telling you sharing with me those things that like you just said well very well meaning loving people who are wanting to believe in the best possible outcome mm-hmm. that our humanness can understand and and just sort of the agony that you were in it felt like agony on my end of the phone mm-hmm. for you, like you were in agony of because. And I re, and I also remember a and you can you, and tell me if I'm wrong if I'm not remembering this correctly. But I remember you telling me a story that somebody had said to you that it was like um, Abraham on the mountaintop with Isaac, and he had the knife in his hand, and they were waiting for the lamb to come. And it was like down to the second. Right. And and they said that's what was going to happen that, to Steve. And they that said down that, at the last minute God was going to heal him. At the last minute yeah. you had to wait till the, you know. And I just remember feeling this agonizing weight of, I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen. Yeah. So Deb, and, last, and what if it doesn't? Yeah. So last week when we talked, we talked about, um, I asked the question of whether or not when you were dangling your feet over the edge and you were getting out of the box and you were, you know, being a little bit uh, randy. Um, <laughs> 
whether or not Kelly ever said, hey, girl, you need to rein it back in. And so when, and she, she said no. She just mm-hmm. loved you right where, she, right where you were. Mm-hmm. And so that question now for you. So mm-hmm. when she's telling you, hey, this person said this thing to me, and you're thinking, uh. I, so I, did, you, did you discourage her? Did you, what, how did you respond to her in those moments? Do you remember? Well, I don't think I discouraged her. I don't think you did either. I think you, I think you were more like, oh, I hope so, or mm-hmm. I hope that's true. I really, really hope that's true, mm-hmm. is what I think I said. Yeah. I mean, thinking about it now, that's what I would say. Yeah. yeah. I really, really hope that that's what happens. So, but Kelly, I, did you have... But I didn't know. Did you have moments of great hope then when people would come to you with these prophetic words? You or... know, I listened and then tried to just wait and see, you know, is that something I need to hang on to, God? And it's like, well, it's all we got. Mm-hmm. So I'll hang on to it and um, hope that that is what you're doing. And in the meantime just keep on putting one foot in front of the other and doing the next thing. But, and we had, we had also, I forgot to say, we had people who, uh, my back went out because of all the stress and I couldn't drive him anymore to (sighs) Seattle for these appointments. And so people signed up and came and would, would give him a ride to his treatments and then bring him back. And that's like an all day thing because you got to get in the ferry line, wait for the ferry to get there, take the ferry ride, go through the traffic and then the whole thing coming back, Seattle traffic, and um, it was brutal. So it it was, but I I know I reached that point where it's like I just can't do I can't physically do this anymore, and to reach out and say this is what I need, and people just to be so willing. One gal was brand new to our church; she had only been there like a week or two, and signed up to take him. So have you ever gone back to talk to any of these people about those car rides? I mean, I just, you know, sometimes I think about those moments that we have with people that are completely unscripted, you know, unscripted moments that we just have with people that, you know, that are just kind of organic. And sometimes those are the... Those are the opportunities. And have you ever heard any of those kinds of stories or what those car rides meant to them? Because I bet it meant something to them. I think it really did, and they had some good conversations. I'm sure there were times when he was too weak to really converse too much. Mm -hmm. And so they gave him a place to just be peaceful and restful and, you know, just... Just be present. Not feel like he had to be on. Yeah. The pastor yeah, feels yeah. like he has to be on. Right, right. right. Of the time. For sure. Yeah. So he, no, he didn't, they did not make him feel like that either. Did he, yeah. did Steve ever come home and tell you, like, you know, on this car ride, so and so said something amazing to me or any kind of, did he have any kind of, of really cool moments with anyone while, you know, of, of peace or of, of, I don't know, resolve or whatever he might be going through. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm such a imaginative person, which is part of my problems. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll just say this. They say that the worst people who are the most afraid to fly are like really smart people (laughs) because, because they imagine... They imagine the plane going down, plane going down right? And then, so that made me oh, I'm just really smart. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, but no, but I, I do. 
I, I wonder about now. Now I see. I totally forgot what I was going to ask you. Well, you were asking if he if had he any ever came home. Yeah. yeah, and honestly, That's, he he came home exhausted. Mm-hmm. He just was. Mm-hmm. It was a lot to, to just like, physically do that, and I, so I wonder in his mind, did he ever share with you like? being afraid or that's that's where I was going with that you know mm-hmm. was was he afraid or did he have peace or did he well you have to remember he wasn't that wasn't really his gift to be able to explain those things very well right. explain his feelings about whatnot so he he would just really share that um you know if it's my time to go it's my time to go there's really not much you can say about that you know Mm -hmm. but I do think that he really grew in appreciation for the body of Christ and people reaching out and doing some of those simple things like um he used to think well why should I go to the hospital and sit there with people in the hospital while their while their loved ones having a surgery is such a waste of time and then he learned oh now I get it Mm -hmm. people just being present with you Mm -hmm. through difficulty is powerful whether they say a word or not. They're just being there. present. And right. he never understood that until he was the person in the hospital that people were coming to visit. Wow. That's that's huge. It is really huge. That's, and so that's you huge. had said that um, when he got the diagnosis and you two had gone out to eat and it just started raining and, and you both cried together and that was the most intimate you'd ever been with this man to whom you'd been married now for 31 years. I mean, that was just an intimacy, a pouring out of your insides. Mm -hmm. And so over the next couple of years as you battled this, how did that intimacy grow? And how did your marriage, what were the last two years of your marriage like compared to 31? He did just open up more and I think was more in touch with his feelings. And part of that, I think, this is humorous, but you know, you're you're taking hormones to keep your male hormones from producing, so you end up having more feelings and emotions, more right? Because, exactly, oh, exactly, awesome. because the 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 prostate cancer feeds off of male the hormones. male hormones, so you're taking medication to suppress that, so right. that it won't have as much to eat. So, so I think that could have played into him being able to be more in touch with his feelings and then of course just being face to face with your own immortality is pretty humbling mm-hmm. you know when you're at, at the your best physical um strength of your life and mm-hmm. you know right because you had said he had you know, lost some he had lost a lot of weight right. he was working Felt out good about so himself, his but, body yeah. was in like the best shape mm-hmm. of his life from yeah. the t- you know from when yeah and, he, and he and he whooped that demon you know yeah. he 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 beat you know, his appetite. Yeah. To and brought that under control that he'd been fighting with for so long. And so he got to feel good about that. Yeah. And um so but I, I do want to say that of the people that said things that they were well meaning and they wanted him to be healed just as much as I did and and by the grace of God I didn't have any hard feelings toward these people mm-hmm. because I think they were just acting out of their Biggest hopes and those fears and yeah. love, all of those emotions come into play. Yeah, mm-hmm. and yet when Steve did pass away, my son and I wrestled greatly with, okay, so what about this personal prophecy stuff? Mm-hmm. What about P- 
people, how come sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't? And how come you pray for some people and they get healed and they don't? And just that, the tension of the reality of that. And then why did God choose these people to heal, but he didn't choose us? That's where I was going to go next is, is well, I, I, wanted to, I want to talk about that because that's really, really important because that ties into how is your faith shifted which is something that we wanted to, to talk about because you've had a definite shift. And I, I can just say that as a girlfriend, taking faith out of it, you have shifted and you're, you, you are stepping into a new season, into a new time in your life. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of hope there. Mm-hmm. And um, you've had to dance with this crappy skeleton and, and you get an opportunity to have a new chapter so I want to talk about that a little bit but um so you understand I, I had another had, question yeah. <laughs> well you were talking about you were talking about you know pro- prophetic words and that kind of thing so how did your oh, I know yes go ahead I know I wanted one of the most beautiful things you've ever told me is your last night with Steve okay and so I, so let me back up to yeah. your question about yeah. the prophecy and whatnot and and I really felt like when God's answer obviously was no, mm-hmm. I will not heal him in this life. We began to wrestle, especially my son and I, over over some of these things, and um, it it felt like our spiritual rug got pulled out from underneath us. And in a way, it was a very good thing looking back at the time. It. It was horrible, mm-hmm. but it, it, it was like everything I know about Christianity and the Bible, I'm going to wipe the slate clean and start all over again mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Some, there's some things in my belief system that are not accurate and they're not helpful or healthy. Mm-hmm. And so I want to go back and sift through those things and, and start over. And, and although, you know, God has healed people miraculously, he usually doesn't. Right. It's, it's not the norm. I don't know why it's not the norm, except that in Bible history, when God did miracles, it didn't necessarily make people stronger. They didn't necessarily follow God because he did miracles. In fact, most of the time it was the exact opposite. So that made me kind of understand, okay, so that's why, you know, you aren't Santa Claus. We can't just say what we want and you do it. That's not how it works. No. <laughs> and yet, you know, God does what he wants when he wants because he is God and we're not. So I believe in a God who's bigger than I am and who knows a whole lot more than I do. And so that is actually a safe place. But you have to go through those things of, well, why did you heal so-and-so and not us? Are we inferior? Did we do something? And we always look inside ourselves and say, did I do one thing too many? You know, whereas that really isn't, it isn't really an equation. Mm-hmm. that can be spelled out and the fact is that whether you walk with God or you don't you're still going to go through suffering in this life and so the question is do you want to walk through it with him or without him and I can say I would much rather walk through it with him because it's going to happen and and relationships have just become so much more precious to me mm-hmm. since then so much more valuable. Um, 
Had you come to a place before he passed away where you were accepting and your kids and your husband, you guys were all accepting of that? (laughs) Or were you honestly hoping that that... Um, you know, that lamb would come out of the bushes at the very no, well, last possible moment. Exactly. Well, so you wonder, you wonder, okay, so is this a test of my faith? Mm-hmm. And if it is, I sure want to pass it. I don't want to give up if I needed to keep on hoping and believing. So um, I actually, after he passed away and they took his body to the mortuary, I asked them, because they would say, is there a certain day that you want us to do the cremation? And I said, my only request is that you wait four days. Because, (laughs) because, and I knew my son would understand, is what if God wanted to raise him on the third day? (laughs) What if I got this phone call that said, "Uh, Mrs. Wolf, there's there's been an... an, uh, uh, something's happened here that, <laughs> that we, we need to explain. You know, <laughs> it could happen. So even then, oh. I was holding on to hope. Even then, and some would probably say, "Well, that's denial." You know, you can call it what you want. It was my journey, and that's that's what I did. And I can know that I held out hope for as long as I possibly could. Yeah. And then I had to deal with, okay, so God said no. But I think no, that that is, that is what grief is all about. We just, mm-hmm. you know, we always hear about, you know, the various stages of grief and they're not, they don't come in any mm-hmm. order right. and they don't last a, a specific amount of time. Right. They can really last the rest of our lives. Right. And, um, you know, we can be happy one moment and the next minute we're just in a heap just mm-hmm. because, you know, grief has just mm-hmm. come back knocking on our door. Right. And um, it's a visitor that just doesn't seem to care about our schedule. Exactly. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And so... Um, I totally, I, I totally get that. And denial or, or, or deep grief or incredible love, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. I, I get that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so Deb had asked about your last moments with him. Yeah, so we were in a wonderful hospice house, um, and he was beginning to not eat or drink much anymore and not respond much anymore. And so I was tending to him in some way, and um, he turned his head and kissed my cheek. He was no longer talking, but he turned his head and kissed my cheek. And little did I know that that would be my last kiss. And, um, but it was very, very sweet. And, um, but the, the last moments, he began to, um, and, and there was a lot of pain, and I had to uh, monitor his pain levels and things um, through the night. Um, because he couldn't push the button anymore himself. So I had to kind of watch him and see when he was in pain and know when to push the morphine button, you know. Mm -hmm. And he would get restless and I would know. So, But towards the end, um, something really beautiful that the hospice team taught me was that when, when someone has days to live, they know it's days because they're making changes every day. There's a new change. Mm -hmm. And when it's hours... When there's new changes every almost every hour, then we know they have hours to live in. So then they can tell you they just have hours. Oh, wow. And I thought, wow. how gracious of God to design our bodies that even in the process that we die, we can see a pattern there and we can we can have knowledge and understanding. And so um, so we knew this was going to be the last hours. and But the very, very last part, he began to breathe 
more hard, like like he was running a race and the, and the breath was beginning to just get harder and harder for him. And like he was just picking up the pace and it, and it felt like he was fighting. I knew he wanted to stay alive because he wanted to take care of me and the kids. And so I was like, oh, honey, you've, you've been running your race. You've, you've run well. You've fought the good fight. You've been fighting way too long. It's okay for you to rest now. You can stop running. And as I said that, you know, he began to slowly, his breathing got less and less and calmer and calmer. And yeah, just told him that God will take care of us. It's okay. And so his breathing slowed down and little by little until it was his last breath on earth and his last, his next breath would be in heaven mm-hmm. in um, the fullness of God's loving presence and just peace and I've never been with someone when they passed on, but it was it was peaceful and was very glad that I had been able to be there and him not to have to be alone in those last moments. So, wow. Yeah. So how long from diagnosis to him passing? How long? Two years. Two years. Yeah. And you were you were promised. I put that five, quote, to, five ten. to ten. Yeah. Yeah. And so and so following his death, then was there. How long has it been now since he passed away? Three years, October 30th. It's coming up. It's coming up. And so have have you, you know, still had moments of anger, still had moments of questioning, still had moments of, or have you, has it just been every day a change, every day a little gradual change? Yeah, and, and I want to say something about Grief Share, which is an international um kind of a group, recovery group for people going through grief was a a fabulous tool to meet with people once a week, watch videos of people who've gone through Mm -hmm. their own grief. Most, you know, some was children, some was spouse, and just different people's stories because there's so many funny things that can happen to your brain when you're going through grief. I mean, you can have brain fog, you can start to think you're going crazy, and you're not, but your body's going through shock. Yeah. yeah. And um, it takes a while to process all of that, and you can't process it all at once. It takes time. And I think that thinking things through and praying and reevaluating things is all a great part of recovery. Well, and I, as I watched your journey too, Kelly, I would say for the first year after Steve passed, I think you needed a year to rest. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it took you at least a year mm-hmm. to to start feeling like you were even close to yourself again because mm-hmm. of how exhausted you were mm-hmm. emotionally, physically. Mm-hmm. You had all, you had pain in your body and just so much. And, um, you know, I, I see you now as... As my old kale. <laughs> I mean, you know, and I know that this hasn't been an easy thing to kind of rehash all this, you know, and I've asked you to do a hard thing, but um, I think it's important. I think it's important for, for people to hear just normal people's stories, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. No one here is some big celebrity. We're just we're normal people living out our normal lives doing the very best we can and your story is actually beautiful mm-hmm. and it's hard and it's painful and but it is it's part of life and you being willing to dance with that in a podcast 
for other people to listen to. Really cool. <laughs> it really is. And you had said that one of the things that you kind of had to do was to take your faith, everything that you'd ever learned about, you know, this this thing that you'd grown up with, you know, you became a Christian when you were about 16 or something, and and then, so you'd lived with this, you'd, you'd been a pastor's wife. Immersed was, in it, yeah. You were immersed in all of this. Um, much of what you believed was just part of your culture, right. it was cultural as much as it was head knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you had said that you had to kind of just throw it all away and kind of st- pick it all up and start again. I, mm-hmm. I kind of liken it as like bricks, you know, that you kind of throw a brick building that you just throw away and you just kind of start break over. the building down. Yeah. And then one by one, you pick up the bricks and you sort of start building your faith again mm-hmm. and building what you believe again based on you know, your experience based on your new knowledge. So so where are you in that rebuilding? And and is there anything that you want to talk about that you've kind of just let go? Things that things that you thought were important, you know, twenty years ago yeah. that you now know are just not that important. Well, I know that transitioning from being quote the pastor's wife to not being the pastor's wife, um, because you it's it, it can become part of your identity because yeah. you're in that role so much. And I remember talking to Debbie and saying, well, gosh, am I going to have to go on a website for, you know, um, widowed pastors? You know, I don't, I don't know how to be anything else other than a pastor's wife. I've loved being it. And she goes, well, Kel, maybe that, maybe that you're not going to be that in the future. Maybe, maybe that's over. And I remember feeling kind of like, well, but I'm so good at it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but, but is my calling over, God? You know, yeah. he called me to this. I thought I was going to do it. And so even just that idea was like, well, that's kind of foreign. But I will say fast forward and having going through that process of letting go of all that, I have such a sense of freedom. Mm-hmm. That, okay, Kelly, you did that for now, but I have something else for you now. That's right. And the freedom mm-hmm. of just being able to not have to deal with the box at all mm-hmm. and just try and figure out who's Kelly by herself. Yeah. Who's mm-hmm. Kelly, although I embraced being a, a wife and a helpmate and a mom, loved all of that. Mm-hmm. I'm not. Anyway, I'm still a mom, but I'm not a helpmate. I lost my... I lost my husband. I you lost... helped me. <laughs> <laughs> I lost my husband. I lost my partner in ministry. I lost the father of my children. So there's these different layers you go through and then go, okay, well, if I'm not those things anymore. Who am I? And because so much of marriage is really um, coming to a compromise. And so you let things go that may have been important to you, but not that important. But... Mm-hmm. And as a mom, you're looking at your children first. And so you're used to putting yourself on the back burner. So now I'm on the back burner going, where, where am I going? And what's, what's important to Kelly by herself? Mm-hmm. And what are the things that spark joy in my life? What are the things I want to spend the rest of my life doing? What's important to me? without taking anybody else into consideration. In one of the earlier episodes, we talked about purpose and uh, finding your purpose in your life. And, you know, especially when you're immersed in the church, you know, we were talking about how we had taken purpose-driven life. Right. And, and, you know, we took the gifts uh, courses that Willow Creek 
church gave yeah. us and all those kinds of things. And then you find, and then people are saying, but you can't, like my, I would always score really high in creative communication. And, you know, I'm like, I'm going to be an actor. And people are like, you can't be an actor. You go to church. You can't, that's not, that's not what church people do, you know. You go to our church and so you can't be an actor. You can't be involved in theater or you can't do this. And so your purpose becomes identified um, you know, by other people and by all of those filters we're listening because we want to listen. We want to be people who listen to what God is telling us, what the universe is telling us, whatever. We want to take in that information. But there comes a point when we have to just stop and say, wait a minute. What, like you said, what does Kelly want? What, you know, what do I want right now? And just because you're no longer um, Steve's wife Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that that calling that is on your life has stopped. It just means that instead of being in four walls on Anderson Island, Mm -hmm. it's now, you've got a different... You've got a different venue. You've got a different audience. It's shape shifting. It's, it's gonna. It's gonna. The calling's there still, but it's just gonna turn into a different kind of a shape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the audience has changed. Everything you know, and now you have this empathy towards towards widows and um, you know, or widowers. You have this empathy towards um, people sitting in a hospital. I mean, right now we've gone through this uh, pandemic and we're still not through it. And there are people lying in those hospital beds. Alone. Alone. Yeah. Yep. Alone. Just... And we were just talking about the importance of, you know, being able to be there with Steve at the end. And people Ugh. are alone. Yeah. So um, this is, you know, this this seems like a time when when people's purposes in general are being shifted. Yeah. And um, so you're not you're not alone Mm-mm. in in that and having a new purpose and in your life being different. So it's kind of it's kind of cool. So have you come to a place now where you're ready to sort of go, huh? You were talked about, you know, like you know, widower pastors out there maybe um have you gotten to the point where you're ready to look for look for love or I mean is that spark kind of coming alive inside of you again yes 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 and how yay and how yay and and so on that note though are you grateful for those last couple of years, that intimacy that you had with your husband, that new that opportunity to, to to be in a different kind of marriage, if you will. Yeah, I th- I think the big thing was that I just kept holding out for God was you know you say that you'll work all things together for good for those who love you, and are called according to your purpose. Right. right. And so, how on earth are you going to bring good from this? Right. And so I'm still in the middle of the process of that, of him bringing good, but I have seen good. And and God has surely turned my mourning into dancing, which, you know, go back three years and up dancing, really? Joy, really? Mm-hmm. And yet now I do. And dust off those tap shoes. <laughs> <laughs> that is right. Yeah, well, he's been very gracious to bring... Um, a very important person into my life, which is my pastor's wife, okay. and um, the new pastor and his wife at the same church. Yeah, yeah. at our church. Yeah, okay. which could have been super awkward 
turn out to be a huge, huge blessing. Oh, right. That's amazing. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah, it really is. And she's very unique, and she's been a beautiful example of me stepping out to be brave to do a podcast like this with you all. But she encourages us, Margie Fogel, to be brave, which is being real and vulnerable every day. I like that. Yeah. Okay. And what was so the thing she- about being hot? <laughs> you have honest, been- open, and transparent. I am hot. Honest, open, and transparent. I am hot, and so is Liz. <laughs> and so, and so, she has not. You have not felt from her any kind of uh, jealousy, or and you haven't looked at her and thought, you know, when I was the pastor of this church, you know, the pastor's wife, I would have done things differently. Mm. There hasn't been that, or has, or have you had to let go of some of that control? No, in fact, um, I was also the administrative assistant, and uh, before they ever came, I just had this sense of, I have got to get out of that role. I have got to take, it's like, you know, you put something on and you're, you're wet, you put a coat on when you're wet and you've just got to get it off, it just, mm-hmm. it's shrinking on you, it doesn't fit anymore, you just got to get out of it, and that's just the overwhelming sense that I have, that I need to step out of that place so that... The new pastor can bring his vision, what God, where, how God wants to lead in the next chapter for Anderson Island Christian Fellowship, and I don't need to be in his way or him have to worry about. Okay, well, her husband did it this way, and am I going to step on her toes here? It's like I don't want that for somebody else to have to deal with, you know. And so I just stepped out in faith, you know, and that part of the. And what are you doing now for a job? No, well, I'm still leading worship at the church. I know. And um, and I'm a real estate agent. Because that's what you look like as a real estate agent. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever that is. (laughs) That is incredible. That's awesome. Are you enjoying that? I am. I still, you know, I still enjoy helping people Mm -hmm. and. That's what I get to do. I like to help people get well, and you resources. Love, you love to decorate, and you love to do housey things, yeah. and so it's sort of a com- it combines yeah. all of your gifts and graces mm-hmm. into this cool, fun thing you get to do. Yeah, and you get to meet new people and explore. Maybe and you'll meet some hot realtor. No. <laughs> or, or, or some rich widower who wants to buy a house yeah. on yeah. Anderson Island. Exactly. <laughs> When so I say any rich widowers who love Jesus, and when I say hot, I mean honest, open, open. and transparent. Transparent, <laughs> right? <laughs> Kelly, is there anything else you'd like to share with us? Any other kind of encouragement for anybody that might be in the midst of grief, or um, anybody afraid of letting go of control? <laughs> hmm. I think it's really important to just surround yourself with people who really love you, that aren't afraid to see who you really are, see you at see you at your worst, and still love you. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, and people who are willing to dangle their foot out the box <laughs> with you. <laughs> or people that you might feel like you need to rein in every once in a while. Yeah. That's okay too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much thank for, for sharing me. your story with mm-hmm. us. And thank you for encouraging all of us. Debbie, mm-hmm. thank you for introducing Kelly to us. This has been awesome. It's been a blessing. So, yeah. Yay. 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 Well, we hope um, all you listening will, will take something away. At some point, we all have had grief and we all will grieve again. 
And so this should be hopefully an encouraging thing to listen to about kind of walking through it and just being normal people walking through life. So hanging on to hope. Yep. And hanging on to hope. So thank you, Kelly. And thank you, Liz, for so many great questions. That was great. So this has been great. And that's a great way to end is that despite it all, after the darkness, there's there's hope. Mm -hmm. There's hope. That is awesome. All right. Thank you again, Kelly. Thanks, Mm -hmm. Deb. We'll see you all all next week. Bye.